Welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Today we hear from Peaky Blinders and SAS rogue hero scribe Stephen Knight about his new scar-infused 1980s drama This Town. From BBC Studios Natural History Unit Chief Johnny Keeling about Planet Earth 3. And from Echo Wright's Friedrich F. Malmborg, Keshet International's Kelly Wright and TVF International's Julian Shu Lambert about this week's London TV screenings. The London TV screenings took place this week, with buyers from all around the world arriving in the UK capital to get a glimpse of the new shows being offered by a host of distributors to the international marketplace this year. The event's grown up around the annual BBC Studios showcase and become a regular fixture in the TV industry calendar with founders All3 Media International, Banerjee Wright's Entertainment One, Fremantle and ITV Studios joined by a host of others. Coming up, we'll hear from BBC Studios Natural History Unit Chief Johnny Keeling, Echo Wright's Friedrich F. Malborg, Keshet International's Kelly Wright and TVF International's Julian Shu Lambert. But first, Stephen Knight, the scribe behind Peaky Blinders, SAS Rogue Heroes and a string of other titles, including new 1980s set scar music drama This Town, being made by Kudos and Mercury Studios for the BBC and distributed internationally by Banerjee Wrights. Here's Knight speaking with Michael Pickard. Before we talk about this town, I just wanted to ask you about your schedule because you must be one of the busiest writers in 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 the industry. I I, I did make a list. So we've got SAS Rogue Heroes season two. You've got Great Expectations yeah. coming out. Taboo two yeah. is, is happening. Um, All the light we cannot see. Ferrari, The Veil, A Thousand Blows, and Maria, the Maria Callas biopic. Have I missed anything? No, no. that's pretty big enough to be going on with. I think so. I mean, how, how do you do it? What's what's the well, a lot of a lot of those things are written and were written during the pandemic um, because obviously no one else was able to do anything, but writers could carry on. So in that sort of two year period, I wrote a hell. So I wrote all the like Ferrari, um, Great Expectation, and so in a way that sort of. Um, that let me get get ahead of myself. Really. But, you know the things that are, the, the things that have been shot are just well. You'll see they're bloody brilliant. They look really good. All the light is so good and great expectations. It's coming very very soon. So all yeah. good. Yeah. How how would um, yeah because we're going to see great expectations soon. I mean, what would how would you just describe that for people who maybe saw your Christmas Carol and and are now thinking well well great expectations is is not unfamiliar as a tv adaptation what's going to be your take on on the novel i mean what i don't want to do is go right i'm going to tear this up and it's going to be you know radical and all of this because you know the book is has endured for a reason because it's really good and the story is good so i've kept the story i've just included stuff that i think if dickens was writing now he would be more at liberty to write stuff that you couldn't write about when he was writing Great Expectations. And just imagine, you know, he would go to the dark places um, quite explicitly. So that's what I'm, that's what I've done. Fantastic. And, and I mean, all, all your stuff is so varied from genre and, and period. Um, but I guess maybe is it a sense of place perhaps that, that draws them all together or is there other themes that you kind of identify that would link Great Expectations with this town, with Peaky and, and other things that you've done? Yeah, I mean, Great Expectations in this town, there is a very definite link. I mean, I don't think everything's linked. I think other people look at it and find connections, which is fine. But I think Great Expectations and this town are very much about escape people born into a particular environment who want to get out of it and that's that, that links both i mean that's the 
that's the fuel for both stories. Yeah. And and so, I mean, just introduce us then to, to this town. How would you describe it? Because you've, uh, in sort of the press announcements, you've described it as a bit of a love letter to Birmingham and Coventry, where obviously you're from and you grew up. So what is it about this story? And, and I mean, just tell us about the story, first of all. Uh, it's the story of four young people in the early 80s who are in quite bad predicaments, born into, you know, uh, council estate life at a time of a lot of social upheaval, so 1981. And they don't just need to escape for the usual reasons of poverty and stuff. They they need to escape for very specific reasons of uh, things that are going on around them. The two lead characters are being led uh, into lives of crime. Let me put it that way. It's more specific than that. but um, And there is no escape. However, along comes this thing called scar music and two-tone. And for reasons that will become apparent when you watch the series, it offers them a glimmer of light to get out. And what we've done is we've approached contemporary artists, very contemporary artists, and said, imagine it's 1981. You know, I think that this is going to be remembered, hopefully, for the for the drama, but also the music is going to be great because we've got the soundtrack which is music that was around at the time, the two-tone and the scar, but also stuff that has been written for us from some really good names in the music industry. And we've, I mean, I'm just so excited about it. And in terms of the, the show, we've by a miracle found these four people who play the leads who are just unbelievably good. You know, when you write something like this, you're saying such and such a character is 18 years old. You immediately think, okay, this is going to be a challenge. And then when you add the specifics of each character, it's going to be even more of a challenge. But somehow we've managed to get these four people that just are a unit. And, you know, the, it's a difficult one to shoot, but the spirit is amazing because the performances are so good. And what I'm trying to do is depict that life, which sort of I grew up in, and not say, oh, God, isn't it awful? Isn't it horrible? Isn't it dreadful? But to see the beauty in it, because people who live there are not walking around thinking this is so horrible and, and ugly all the time. You know, I'm, I'm, my idea is to try and find the beauty in those council estates as the sun sets, you know what I mean? And and the and the joy of the life that the people are living. Um, and yeah, that's it. That's what it's going to be about. Are, is there, are there universal story points? Are there international story points you feel will appeal to a global audience? Because obviously Peaky Blinders has, has won fans around the world. Is and, and that's a very specific story about specific characters. Is that a similar approach to this one, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I've given up predicting what will be popular in Buenos Aires <laughs> and Moscow. You know what I mean? It's like... You don't know. There's not a formula for it, I don't think. But what, you know, the universal themes are the same as the universal themes in anything, which is love and hate and revenge and prejudice and oppression and conquest and all of the things that, that happen in the drama are in it. And it looks good and sounds good. So I think that helps. But, you know, the, this is a story I wanted to write. And if the world loves it, great. If the world doesn't love it, there you go. Um but I think I think they will. I think all the things that Peaky's got, this has got equally. Yeah, and it's it's, a, it's that similar blend of family with the thriller elements and and scar music sort of thrown into boots. So that's quite a heady cocktail, I imagine. When you're in, you know, when you're sitting down in the pandemic writing this, was that quite a, a mixture to sort of get your head around? Yeah, it's great, and it, and the people dress 
well. You know, I mean that that also has an effect. I think so. It is, um, and it's trying to do all of those things, but keep the vocabulary real and keep the characters as odd and bonkers and, and unpredictable as real people are. Yeah. Try not to make con- conventional fictional characters, and because I always think that in fiction. A character is one thing and cannot be anything else, just is that all the way through. People are not like that. They change every 10 minutes. In them. And that's what I try to do is that it, that it is to not necessarily obey the rules of fiction too much. And, and how have you used the music then? Is it it's more than just the soundtrack? There's the band sort of playing this, you know, on a stage, you know, performances like that. How have you sort of woven that music that you sort of you've got into the show? You'll see. You'll see. I mean, I, I think it's, it's you can imagine how it will work. But yeah, um, I, I I don't want to give too much away. No, <laughs> fair enough. And so as the writer, creator, or executive producing as well, I mean, would you say, are you a showrunner on your kind of projects or do you take a step back from that overall role and, and let other people obviously come to the fore as well? Uh, I mean, the, the showrunner role, I think, is important when there's a group of writers. Mm-hmm. Um, but with, I don't tend to work with in a, a writer's room. I just write it myself. So, you know, the showrunner element of making sure the scripts are okay is, is me. Um, but I've, I've done showrunning and it's an odd thing because like with a film, if you're making a feature, the thing you do is employ the best people and let them get on with it. And that's the best way to do it, I think. I think it can get horribly complicated. Um, sometimes when the budget is too big, it becomes difficult because there's enough money to screw it up, you know. Um, but when the when money's tight, which is sometimes an advantage, you just have to get on with it. So it, it's not an official, it's long answer to that. It's not an official role of showrunner, but um, all of those other things that you do. Right, and, 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 and this town is filming at the moment in Birmingham, but I guess notably filming at Digbeth Lock Film and TV Studios, which is your own sort of establishment. I mean, can you just tell us about that journey? Because um, it seems in the UK at the moment, every bit of spare land is being turned into a, a TV studios, but this is something you've yeah. wanted to do for a little while. Can you just tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, it's now the eighth year. So when I first started saying to people, we should turn this into a film studio, in other words, it began with me wanting there to be a film studio in Birmingham, because I thought there's a big hole in the middle of the country where there's no production. But Eight years ago, people looked at you as if you were mad. You know, it was like you were you were suggesting the circus or something. Um, you know, it was, it was not real. And now, as you say, everybody's doing it. But I think the fact that everybody's doing it means that what we have to do, what we're going to do is when people are choosing where to go. I mean, having worked in the industry for a long time, I know how hard it is. I know how brutal it is as a job for people, for crew director everybody really bloody long hours cold wet miserable very unglamorous work um and what i want to do is the difference with digbeth lock it will be designed to be a place where it's actually fun to be where where it is going to be hard work but you're in a a cool place which is digbeth uh we're going to be laying on lots of good stuff which i can't talk about but in other words, you you know, I think in studios, the, the barrier goes up, you go in and you get on with it. But here there'll be an opportunity to meet other creative people in different um, disciplines. Uh, there'll be nice places to eat and drink and, and sleep. I'm trying to get it so that everybody can, all crew can stay on the, the location, the campus, if you like. So everybody walks to work. Um, use the canals because uh, they're nice and green. We're trying to be as green as we can. We're going to rescue a river, the River Ray, which runs through it. Our bit of it anyway. So it's a very ambitious plan. And 
we've started before we're ready, which I think is always a good thing, um, because we started this town and, you know, we're still constructing the thing. Um, but it's working and everybody's getting, especially with something like this town, people sort of tend to get on with it and think, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll do it. Um, and it's working brilliantly. And it's just got a great energy and feel to the place, um, which I love. And, you know, already uh, MasterChef are moving in in spring 24 so you know it's, it's got these uh beautiful i think beautiful canal architecture warehouses some of them massive and one of them is really big but they bothered to make it look like a canal boat in like the 19th century because they they did in them though and they're just sitting there for 20 years falling apart and now one it's called the banana warehouse is going to be the center the hq of masterchef which is the bbc's biggest international franchise i think and it's just lovely. It's like dusting some off and polishing it and, and then going, look at that. You know, it's going to be so great. So that's an ambition of mine that uh, is coming to fruition. And what I'm doing is is all of my stuff. I'm putting forward the idea that we shoot it there as a strong preference. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it, it, you can hear, I guess, the, the interest and the joy that when you discuss sort of that behind-the-scenes work, you have a real interest in, in how shows are made and, and I guess – the shows you write, they have a lot of production design, a lot of costume elements to them usually. So you, that's obviously something you consider quite a lot when you're writing a show. Yeah, it, it seems to, it, it's not like a first priority, but it seems that if if you do stuff, write stuff that is, first of all, different and also quite a challenge where I think people having are having to dust off books and look up things they've never looked up before to get it right. People get into it, you know, and enjoy it. And I think if the crew are enjoying it, then, I mean, it's difficult to enjoy it's two o'clock in the morning, freezing cold, pouring and all of that. I know it really is horrible work, but if there is an end goal that people feel invested in, I think it does help. Like the Peaky team are just brilliant and they've got a great loyalty. Mm-hmm, definitely. And then you mentioned, you know, obviously you've been working in the industry a long time in the US and, and, and here. I mean, how... Do you, would you just assess, you know, the state of the, the TV landscape at the moment? There's lots of talk of just the cost of production, obviously, rising through the roof and, and streamers are, are kind of, you know, cutting their cloth a bit more appropriately, perhaps at the moment and cutting back a little bit. As a writer with so many different projects on so many different streaming platforms, you know, how do you just look at the landscape, you know, as it we're going forward? Yeah, um, it's been like a golden age, as everybody says, for television. And I still do movies as well. But television for me as a writer is the one that where you get most control um and i think there was an explosion you know of, of streamers and things and i think inevitably that's going to settle i think it's settling now a lot of people can't afford to have subscription so you know i i think and hope the good will survive and i hope that the streamers will go for quality and understand that people will only part with money if it's something exceptional but yeah we'll see you know it, in america it's different um and it's very um, single-minded in terms of profit but i that's i mean i love working with particular streamers they're great uh i also really love working with the bbc where it's a steady ship you know when all of this is going on and, and things explode and then things fall apart the bbc sails on and in terms of creativity i think it's never been so good and what the, the trick the bbc have learned over 100 years is leave people alone let them do it let them get on with it 
um, don't know everything to death. You know what I mean? And and that's why I love working BBC and the stream. You got the best of both. And, and this town, I mean, I remember at the start of Peaky, you had a, a sort of a plan. You knew the scene that it would end on. I mean, is that a similar process for this show? Is it going to return? Do you think, hopefully, a few years through the eighties? Oh God, yeah. I mean, the plan is for it to return um, and to explore and follow the lives of these people. Um, I don't really have an end for this um but like the peakies what happens is that you're sort of led by events so you know things ha- things happened in let's say jumps to 84 maybe things happened in 84 i'm just making it so we go along but there's a minor strike you know and all of that so um in a way you look at that event and you think okay how is how are my people going to be affected by this and that gives you a sort of a seed and the germ of, of where it'll go so it will be led by history a bit like peaky and and just before I let you go, I mean, Peaky is the story not ended yet. We've had the the ballet and and there's you know talk of films and things. What is that a story that you're going to continue? What's next? We're going to shoot the film in one of my or our beautiful warehouses in Digworth um, this year. Uh, the script is written and it's going to be a fitting end to that. It's the the end of the beginning, I suppose, because after that, you know, if people want it, there will be. Uh, Try not to call them spin-offs, but new. Well, we might go into the fifties, you know. Fantastic, the Peaky Blinders universe uh, <laughs> to rival Marvel or, or something like that, maybe. <laughs> exactly. Why should they have all the fun? Johnny Keeling became head of BBC Studios Natural History Unit 18 months ago, having worked on series including Seven Worlds, One Planet, Planet Earth, Planet Earth 2 and now Planet Earth 3, which is due for release later this year. Keeling spoke to Clive Whittingham about the series and other new titles, plus the changing storytelling techniques being employed to keep the natural history genre fresh, as well as the crucial role of co-production. Johnny, when did you start? September? September 21, actually. Yes, so it's a year and a half, really. Yeah, yeah how, have you, uh, how have you found that, that first year in the gig? What have you looked to do? Oh, I love it. It's, um, it's really intense. It's really fun. It's incredibly varied. I haven't done a job as varied as this. The, the people at the unit, we have between 400 and 500 people at the Natural Unit, and it's been really exciting. They're all incredibly passionate, dedicated people, and I love working with them. That's the highlight. Um, there's also, I don't know if you know, but in about five years ago, we changed from just making programmes for the BBC to making them for uh, some other broadcast and platforms like Apple, NBC Universal, um, Disney Nat Geo, um, Discovery and so on. So that's really creatively exciting for me is that we now have a huge audience to reach and we have um, like we can make a program that's very different for, say, Nat Geo as opposed to one for the BBC or one for Apple. And the, that creative range is really exciting, that variety. And I think the, the other thing that we've been able to do, which I, I've loved, is many years ago I had this idea idea um, about um, a kind of outreach idea about giving something back we we would traditionally go to countries and film and then come back and show the footage in the UK or in Europe and across North America and actually we weren't sort of leaving as 
much as I felt like we should be in that country. So we now we have a program where we uh, fund in-country training and we've just funded people in Zambia, Kenya, Indonesia, Madagascar, and we have in-country screenings as well. So we're not only training people, we're also showing people in those areas um, where we're filming. And that's been really exciting to, to start that. It's called Project Songbird. It's a million pounds over the next three years for in-country training and in-country screening to help people tell stories in the countries and where they live. And obviously from a sustainability point of view, that's great for us because it means we have camera people based on in those locations who can film for us. I did wonder whether that would be um, a sort of takeaway or something that stuck around after the pandemic. So I wrote a few features around the COVID time about whether natural history was like the perfect COVID genre or a nightmare, because obviously <laughs> it's quite limited crews in quite remote places usually, which you would think is good for COVID, but also it's a lot of international travel and flying around which is the sort of nightmare for COVID and one of the things that kept coming up in that conversation was we can train up local crews it improves the footprint the carbon footprint of the productions anyway and then we'll have these skilled local crews for after COVID and I wondered whether television would just go back to doing it how it was before or whether that would would stick around. We were doing some of it before we made a series called Seven Worlds and the Australia episode of that two-thirds of it was filmed by Australian camera people And we used local camera people where we could, but actually COVID definitely accelerated that and has improved it. And we've learned how to remote direct, you know, to direct people remotely. And it's been great opportunities for people locally um, to showcase what they can do and tell their stories. So, yeah, there has for us, there's been an upside and a downside of, of COVID, really. Was it was it the perfect genre or was it was it just a nightmare? <laughs> um, I don't know enough about other genres, really. It was, um, you know, we definitely had local camera people uh, working and doing a brilliant job and it, it it made a big difference. But it was, you know, for some of us, it was it was a nightmare really to, to when you, you're used to going out and filming on location. Not being able to do that for essentially two years has been really hard. But the teams, like I say, are absolutely astonished by what they've managed to achieve. If you think, you know, Frozen Planet, Green Planet, Prehistoric Planet, just three of the big titles that we've delivered in the last year, last 12 months, they were all largely shot and edited and delivered all through COVID. Is there, um, you mentioned, you know, you get to make for other broadcasters now, um, and obviously each broadcaster is particular, but is there, is there a lot of difference in the stuff you guys make for, for streaming services and the, the, guy, the third parties you mentioned there as opposed to a Frozen Planet for the BBC? Do they look different? Are the budgets different? different i mean obviously netflix have gone down that blue chip wildlife route and spent quite a lot of money doing it but are the you know from if you pull back the magician's curtain is you know is the working still the same as it would be on a bbc series i mean there's still the sort of i would say the three kind of pillars of the natural history unit are still really important which is to do something that's original and new, to do something that's emotionally heartfelt, you know, wonderful storytelling. And the third thing is to make sure it's factually correct, there's scientific rigor and integrity in that. So those three sort of pillars remain and that quality remains, you know, regardless really. But of course you make different things, you know, the programs we make for Apple and the ones we make for Disney and the ones we make for Universal and for the BBC, that's what's the beauty of it. We can make something that's appropriate for all of those audiences, all the different audiences, now and we you know that we we do make them differently there are things at the core of them that remain the same that that like i say that give it that quality and that value how do 
you, um, I mean, natural history used to be, you know, capturing new behaviours or a new species or, you know, a bit of both. Given how long the genre has been around and how much of it is produced now, it's very popular, it's proliferated. How do you move it on? Is it still about trying to capture those new behaviours? Because I would think most of them, it's very difficult, right, to find something that's never been on film before. So is it is it tech or is it like narrative and making it more sort of character-led? I don't know. How do you sort of move it on with each each series? Well, it's interesting you say it's very difficult to find something new, but, I mean, it's estimated, I think it's something like 10 million species. No one really knows. So if you think okay. about that, there's 10 million stories. Right, and okay. So you, kind of, you can still do it that way. Yeah. I, I mean, you find new species to tell stories, but I, I we've got series coming up. Um, uh, we've got a series on mammals, for example, which is going to be delivering uh, later this year, um, possibly broadcasting early next year. And that that series um you know there's mammals in there that I, I didn't even know existed do you know what I mean and I, yeah. I'm a biologist by training I have a PhD in mammal biology I know that sounds ridiculous but it's sort of and planet earth three which is coming up you know we have really driven teams who come back and say well, have you heard about this story and I'm like I've never even heard of that animal so those there's definitely new animals or they say we're going to this location I've got I've never heard of it before so there's new locations there's new species new behaviors and there's new tech like you say you know um on uh I mean, I worked on a series called Seven Worlds. We we used drones. They had just been sort of coming out at that point. So you suddenly went from be, having to u- try and use a helicopter. And you imagine that if you were going yeah. to a cave, going to Antarctica or wherever you're going. But actually, if you can pack it in a little rucksack, you can take it and get amazing shots. So definitely new tech as well. There's always, and, and I think changing the way we tell stories as well. If you look at the stories we told 20 years ago and then how we tell them now, they've really moved on in terms of they're much more dramatic and more... Um, character filled and like I say about the like I was saying before one of the pillars of the natural history unit for me is that emotional heartfelt storytelling that is much more prevalent now than it was 20 years ago so there's different ways to innovate and I think we're always looking to do that and just basically make the most compelling stories possible that seems to be a real trend to me I was going to ask you about about trends but you've touched on the one that I've sort of noticed there is like you say it's almost borrowing from drama character driven rather than you know a guy comes on the screen and sort of points and tell and tells you what yeah. it is I, pre- I presume that that sort of traditional sort of heavy heady kind of documentary making is a big sort of no-go for an, for an audience now well, we still like i say we still want to make sure i'm a scientist lots of people yeah. in the natural unit are scientists we work with thousands of scientists around the world and field workers and so we want to make sure everything is truthful everything is real that's really important to us that that factual integrity but yes you know we we if we've got an animal character that we know as an individual then of course it's incredibly relatable we're animals they're animals you know they have you know youngsters or they're part of a family or they have you know um they fall in love and you know so we're and people are recognizing that more i think in the natural world again in the last 20 years it's partly our storytelling but it's also partly recognizing that animals are all and again this sounds ridiculous but they are all individuals and that they all have their own personalities you know 20 30 years ago people that wasn't a very kind of you know it's like no animals are like this are very, we're very different um and maybe maybe even longer ago than that than 20 30 years ago but that's moved on as well our understanding of animals sentience and their understanding of our of animal behavior but also our storytelling yeah and we definitely borrow tropes from you know look at a drama and then think actually look how they've told that story in terms of character how can we make it more relatable 
relatable, but the animals are relatable. One of the um, new titles we have that we'll be announcing is called Big Little Journeys. And it's basically looking at the really small animals. Again, you were sort of saying, is it difficult to, to, to find new stories? But we've gone to find, again, some animals there I literally didn't know existed. And they are, we're filming them. The, the guy who's making that program made Green Planet, which I thought was very innovative, you know, in a way with technology. So they're using technology and store, you know, new storytelling techniques to tell the journey of these tiny animals and how they have to make these epic, dramatic journeys across mountains and through forests and things. And it's not a story we often tell. So we've innovated in technology, in the animals we've chosen, and in the way we're telling those stories. And the perspective is from the small animal rather than always looking at the elephants and the lions and the tigers. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's a, a really good example, I think, of innovation. How do you work the climate change message into your programming? Because it's obviously intrinsic to everything that's going on and everything you're filming. How do you work that uh, in without it feeling like you're lecturing or hectoring the audience or making it feel like homework? Well, I think exa exactly like that. You, you, you don't lecture them. You don't say you need to do this or look at this or... I think it's part of almost every story that we're filming. And um, we don't necessarily feature it as every in every story. But in Planet Earth 3, we have stories about climate change and stories about biodiversity loss and about extinction that, that sit alongside and they're embedded really carefully and really thoughtfully into the series. So we have amazing animal behavior in that, you know, like I said, new locations, new animals, new new stories. But within that, we then look and say, oh, well, here's a story actually where it's being impacted by humanity. And it would work really nicely as an extra, really interesting element of the story, as opposed to here's a rainforest and here's one being chopped down. Do you know what I mean? It's not that yeah. clunky. We're sort of... If, if, you're, if you're filming an animal behaviour story and you record, you see that there's a part of it which has human impact, that adds an extra layer. But I think we have to be really careful because you don't want to just keep bashing people over the head. I think you need to, we need to give people hope. I think it's yeah. about hope and inspiration. And you can, so you can still raise those issues about deforestation or climate change, but you can talk about them in a hopeful way rather than in a way of sort of fear and intimidation. Do, do you see what I mean? It's yeah, of, I do. Is that difficult? Because I mean, it's quite a bleak, it's quite a bleak picture. Um, but there are amazing stories of hope. I'm a really optimistic person. So I look at the stories of hope and think, oh my goodness, if we all did that, look, look what would happen. So we've got stories in Planet Earth 3 where, I mean, I don't want to give too much away, but the 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 you know, there's a story where you think, oh my goodness, that's a disaster. But then you realize how someone's behaving and what they're doing, and you it is a hopeful story. So I think we we walk a fine line. I mean, you know, these programs tend to go out, they might go out, say, on a Sunday night, and we're very aware of that. And people don't want to sit on a Sunday night and feel terribly guilty about something but they also don't want they want to see the world as it is and the real world so I think they, they, they add to an in, interesting story they were just documenting the world as it is and that's really important and we're not shying away from that but we you know there are ways to frame it that aren't doom and gloom every yeah. single sequence do you find um commissioning editors are open to open to that because somebody once said to me when I was doing a natural history feature that um it used to be called the c word you know um, <laughs> cons conservation and as soon as there was any sort of anything like that in the documentary, it just switches the audience and the commissioning editors off. Is that has that changed, or was it? Did you ever? I, I think I think the the commissioning editors that we have across all of those platforms are really open to. Um, discussing that and really open for us to to put in that narrative and, and say this is the truth this is what's happening in the world um, we haven't had I've had no pushback at all on when we say we'd like to feature this or no one said well hang on a minute that's a bit too much conservation and you know it, it features in well it will feature in Planet Earth 3 it features in the mammals program we've got 
other series coming out, Wild Scandinavia, it will feature in those as well, you know, the modern day and human impact. There's 8 billion people on Earth. You can't really get away from it. So, yeah. no, we've been, they've all been really collaborative and genuinely really actually really love working with all of our clients. They're all very creative and um, very smart people. Are there other trends that you've seen in natural history that you're keen to take advantage of or, or other things that you've noticed other than the, the stuff that we've discussed so far? I mean, my last question was going to be the sort of biggest challenge facing you and whether it's the economy you know we've got uh, everything's costing more to make and broadcasters have got less to spend and natural history is expensive with long lead time presumably co-production is one of the ways around that yeah co-production has been fantastic for us i mean if you think about the the big landmark series i've worked on them on planet earth one and planet earth two they're all and and planet earth three actually and the blue planets and so on they're all possible because they're co-produced i mean you know obviously a portion of that money comes from public service bbc public service but a huge portion of it comes from um our global broadcast partners, you know, in France, in Germany, in the States, in China, that that money all comes in and makes them possible. And it also gives us reach and an audience, you know, something like Planet Earth or Blue Planet reaches a billion people, you know, it reaches Blue Planet reached 17 million people in the UK, Seven Worlds reached nearly 15 million people. And yet, around the world they end up reaching hundreds of millions so it does sort of a couple of jobs for us you know it makes them possible and affordable and and it also reaches a big audience and it's brilliant for us the, the co-production model we we've got a brilliant distribution team that we work closely with sales and distribution and our broadcast partners we get on very very well with them um how is it and, and finally like i say that the economic challenges what is it going to be sort of uh, trying to make programs with much smaller lead time and smaller budgets or, or does that not really work we make natural history. We make a variety of programs, probably as you're aware, you know, from from kids shows to um, live TV to presenter led and podcasts and digital content. Which is one of the brilliant things about the NHU is that you know, according to what the trends are and what the economic climate's like, you can sort of lean more into those. And and we're ready for because it does change rapidly. It's changed. It's sort of changed in the last year. You know what people want, and we're ready at any point to sort of lean into that or to lead it and say which is what I think is important is for us to say we've got an innovative way and in my experience going and sitting with those clients the things that they get most excited about is the surprises it's not when they say can if we've got a brief can you can you work to this of course you do that and some of those projects get away but the ones that I see people's face light up is when you turn up with something that they never even dreamt of and and you're sort of leading the way and that's what we always aim to do at, at the natural history unit Echo writes, the Swedish headquartered outfit that last year became part of Germany's night train media specialises in drama and also has offices in the UK, Spain and Turkey. Managing director and co-founder Friedrich F. Malmborg spoke to me about some of the shows in focus at this year's screenings, the way in which streamers' changing strategies are shaping the marketplace and the impact on the Turkish TV business of the terrible devastation caused by the country's recent earthquake. My name is Fiedeko Malmborg. I'm the CEO of EcoRights. We are a um, uh, distribution and development and investment company focusing on developing great TV shows, um, uh, TV series for the world, but helping producers to retain and develop their IP. We have offices in uh, Stockholm, London, uh, Istanbul and Madrid. We are majority owned since this summer by Night Train Media, a great partner, a Munich-based uh, company that is uh, investing in uh, drama series mainly and, 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 and feature films. And we're very happy with this cooperation because it's, it's, a, it's a perfect match. 
We do Turkish drama, but we do also a large number of um, um, English language series based in our London office. So uh, we do a bit, I mean, it's UK series, Nordic series and Turkish series. That's what we are mainly focusing on. We'll come back to talking about Turkey in a little while, but um, to, to focus on, on the London screenings for the time being, it's your first time coming to this event. So, um, you know, what was it that appealed to you about it and, and how do you see the event growing in terms of its place within the uh, annual industry sales calendar, I suppose? Well, there's a, there's a lot of events this spring, and that's that's of course nice to meet everyone. London Screening is a, is a, is a great opportunity for us to present our English language slate, uh, since we have a London office in some time now. So uh, it's a great opportunity. We're going to have a big cocktail party with a few hundred people and and some premiere screenings. So that's 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 very nice. And uh, what we are presenting there this way this year is um, the result of our. Our new investments in the in 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 UK drama, but also the, I mean, in a bit of projects coming from a new way of working that we called acquired co-productions. Basically, where we invest a bit more in the development together with the producer, and then licensing the series. Either, of course, either it goes to a commission to a streamer, but uh, more and more we see the streamers developing um, or acquiring more than commissioning. So I think the um, the way of going the acquisition route for new projects is 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 very uh, working very well at the moment. So we're going to present uh, a number of big new projects. Uh, one is called Vanishing Triangle from uh, um, the executive produced by Elon Arania, who did Tehran and Your Honor and Fallen, for example. Um, so we work with uh, with him and Park Film on Island, and it's. Uh, it's a crime story uh, that uh, that uh, basically a, a reporter who uh, whose mother was murdered by a serial killer 20 years ago in something called a vanishing triangle and it's it's a it's a true ca- uh, crime case and now uh, she's getting involved in that murder case because the murder is still out there and that's an interesting project we pre-sold it to to virgin island as a commissioning anchor broadcaster and then we also got um, Sundance now as a co-producer and we pre-sold it to a number of territories, which is in the in the model. We we invested quite a lot, yes, but the most, I mean, the majority of the IP is still with the producer. And and it's a, it's a it's a fantastic series and a new model. So that's a, that's one of our new screenings for, for London screening. Another project is a project that we represent on behalf of our mother company, Night Train Media, called Fallen, uh, directed by Matt Hastings, who did Handmaid's Tale, for example, it's a it's a young adult series and then big budget, really really fantastic series that we're going to premiere. And uh, the only anchor there that we have uh, attached so far is Globo in Brazil, and the rest of the rights are available. But it's basically a big big budget Hollywood, I mean European production, but made with with Hollywood talent. So um, that is an, uh, another big um, project. We have a few Channel 5 series that we're very proud of. That is really good, Desperate Measures, that is soon premiering. Amazing story. But also some Norwegian and some European, and some 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 Nordic series that we're proud of, such as the amazing uh, Crypto Kings that premiered on TV2 in Norway last week, about a bunch of uh, 20-year-old kids who 10 years ago put in thousand uh, uh, euros on a Bitcoin account agreeing that they shouldn't open it in 10 years and it's based on true facts and when they check the account 10 years later it's 150 million so it's like a comedy about a bunch of 20 year olds getting incredibly rich and how they cope with that so 
that's a little bit of the view of the series that we are uh, presenting to London Speeding. How do you feel, you know, buyers are at the minute? You know, how, how buoyant is the market? And why do you think some of these programs might appeal? There's suggestions that actually crime is, is kind of, I don't know, not not peaked but it's perhaps less in demand or at least dark crime and the sort of lighter hearted series like the comedy that you just mentioned might be uh, more popular at the moment yes i mean i think we need a bit of we need a bit of relaxing in those very troubled times but uh, in general i think we've seen a number of years where most platforms has bought everything and kept everything for the world and uh, that has been delightful for many producers because they've gotten well financing and, and, and sometimes good reach but I think it's a bit sobering up in the market at the moment when um, when the budget is slightly tighter and and uh, you need to find new ways of doing things and then acquiring instead of commissioning is a very appealing um, alternative and I think historically the uh, the programming department at platforms and broadcasters has been very divided between acquisition and commissioning. And I think uh, Netflix started to that trend of actually working more together because it doesn't have to be your own um, your own commissioning be, uh, to become your most most important series. So I think there is an uh, sobering up and more rational that actually uh, it's more licensing into Windows instead of buying the whole the whole world, which I think is ultimately good news for the producer who can get out of a cost plus model that is not so uh, more fair or in incentivizing I think and given that you're you know embarking upon a or, or have put in place a, a relatively new strategy of, of kind of developing UK based projects um, tell us a bit about that market you know I mean it's really competitive obviously and uh, it's it's a struggle to find even production space to get some of these things off the ground we've heard lots about a crew crunch as well um, yeah you're, you're deciding to uh, to make an investment in in specifically in developing UK content Yes, absolutely. I think uh, it's somehow, I think very, a lot of producers are looking for alternative models there. They can get more support uh, in development and uh, taking the projects a few more rounds before it's taken out to the market. And we are happy to support them with that financing. And, and also our developing team is advising and, and uh, we've gathered quite some expertise, I think, in, in, um, in taking projects uh, up and getting them getting them financed and ultimately becoming profitable products for the for the producers so i think that uh, that is that is developing and ultimately i think we see more and more series being licensed non-exclusive to different territories and to manage the rights over longer uh, time than just going for i'm a little bit against the classic saying i need to finance my show i need to bridge the gap i think the producer should should look uh, a bit further ahead than that and actually understanding that for the fantastic series that we can develop together to more manage the rights and and do that properly uh, to to get the to get the value that uh, that they they deserve and to also keep a bit of creative control and is that strategy in place as a result of the, you know your change of ownership the fact that the night train media uh, from germany acquired you last year and taking over ownership from south korea cjenm Mm. No, I think I mean uh, I'm still um, a partner in the company, and but I think, and but uh, uh, Nitro Media holds, holds the big majority. And when we met, I think it was a perfect match because we shared exactly the same vision there, where the, where the market is going. So I'm very happy for that cooperation, and uh, we are uh, being. I mean, we we we've done some really strong years in the last two years, and um, that of course encouraged us to uh, to invest more and to do more. But uh, in a market like this, I think 
uh, producers need a little bit more of support uh, in the new roles, I think, in, in, in this market to be able to have stronger product and more developed project to manage to uh, retain more rights and, and sell them more efficiently uh, around the world. Um, so that is perhaps changing or, or uh, I mean, it's, it's a good opportunity for producers because, I mean, we approached by a lot of producers who's done a few platform shows and yes, they got good reach. And uh, I mean, if they were, were successful, they were uh, highly appreciated around the globe. But the business case of going to a cost plus model where you have uh, have to hire an accountant on set and 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 then uh, collecting the receipts on the Friday and you get that plus whatever 15 20% of the money that is a model that i think is is not so incentivizing for producers so people are looking for alternatives to take their top projects to do something differently and uh, we are there to help them do that but uh, again we do a lot of series we develop a lot of series that are are sold in global deals to platforms. But I think it's good to have an alternative. And I think it's also appreciated by the platforms because, I mean, they uh, they cannot buy everything for the whole world. That's an uh, outdated idea. Um, some projects, but not all. I mean, it's very interesting, though, the role of sort of private equity in this because, you know, everyone needs access to finance, right? And and, and Night Train is backed by um, uh, Seraphin Group, I think is, is the name of the private equity yeah. company behind them. Um, presumably, you know, that's the kind of the tap, as it were, that, that allows you as a distributor whose whose roles are sort of changing very much. You know, you're, you're no longer about sort of straight program sales, finished tape sales. You're, you're much more about finance, co-production and, and, and development as well. I mean, that that's the the, the kind of um, resource that, that companies like yourselves kind of in, increasingly seem to need behind you. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, um, we um, we have a we have a good development, but that's uh, that's mainly based on our our. Um, we have a good development budget for this year, and and uh, that's but that's mainly based on our own profits because I think uh, we our model uh, is working well. Uh, what is really good about the combination with Nitrain Media is that they have a great development team, and we have also more and more development executives in our team, uh, so we can actually advice and and contribute something to the development uh, project and we we quite often also get approached by writers who had a really good idea and uh, maybe just the one pager and then we develop that together uh, and um, uh, and then match producer or or develop from the start with a with a production company on board but but that whole process of of managing and developing ip uh, needs a bit of more financing, but it also needs an organization. I mean, we're soon 50 people in our four offices, and I think one very growing, big growing part of what we do is also our direct-to-consumer team that we have here in Istanbul that I'm, I'm today. And there we're putting putting series up with five dubs from the, from the start, and we are managing the rights globally. And that the CPM is kind of doubling every year. Uh, so that part of adding that part to the other things we do it's a, it's a very interesting combination uh, because I think that our uh, our industry has been very much focused on SVOD in the last uh, in the last years and that's great and um, people are subscribing to a number of services and that brings revenue and resources to our industry but we should not forget about the advertising window as well because uh, after all a lot of series uh, are more made for actually I mean from a commercial point of view made to expose advertisement. Uh, but has been the, the history in our industry in the last decades mainly, and I think that that window is is there's a lot of lot of things to do there. 
Are you talking about the fast channel space, which we hear so much about? I think America is obsessed by uh, fast channels, and that's great because people are quarter cutting and they need an alternative. But ultimately, fast channel, or if it's VOD, or if it's YouTube, or or if it's Daily Motion, or Facebook, or TikTok, it doesn't really matter. It's it's uh, it's it's a matter of um, presenting series uh, for free to a bigger audience and then uh, making money from the advertisement. And the fast channel is one. I I don't think it will be that big in in quite some time because then. It's basically VOD that they put up in a linear form, and we do fast channels. But uh, what we're making the most of money is normal YouTube channels. Or, uh, yeah, it's a channel, but you can choose whatever episode you want to watch, depending on where you were last. What about the way in which um, you've sort of hinted at it in a a couple of points that you've made there, but about, you know, the global streamers and the way that they seem to be relaxing their rights positions in certain cases. And we're also seeing the US studios that have been, you know, withdrawing in recent years from licensing their own content and keeping it within their own streamers. They seem to be talking about returning to uh, licensing that program to the international market as well. I mean, what are the implications of those shifts for your business and the industry as a whole? No, I think it was um, running global platforms in some series really performs globally, but I think it's important to for uh, writers and producers to get more fair uh, success fee or revenue share because uh, and 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 also a bit of control at least minimum you should be allowed to do the second season if it's a success uh, that is something that we are helping uh, producers to to get more of because i think it's absolutely necessary i mean we we have been working for many years in many different markets and the one that are vibrant and interesting are the markets where the producer retain more rights like the UK in terms of trade, whatever, two decades ago, the Turkish market has been exploding, would never have happened without a very generous revenue share to the producers. And uh, I see that, uh, but I think it's interesting, like what they are doing now in France with the, with the, where the rights goes back to the producer after a certain, uh, like two years, and a certain amount of the streamers revenue has to be reinvested in, in French drama. Those regulations are interesting, uh, I think, for the European market. Uh, but ultimately, I think also the market itself will adjust this because it's becoming too costly for, for uh, most of the streamers to buy all rights worldwide and they need to find other ways of acquiring the rights they really need or to share a non-exclusive window with somebody else. I mean, if you take a look at the music industry, it's, it's not that one song is only on, on Spotify. It's the same song on, on many different platforms. And I think our industry, at least for many series, will go the same way, where you share share the success, but based on uh, uh, on um, multiple outlets, not just one global platform. Are you sort of seeing the economic pressures that everyone is experiencing? Is, is that kind of having an impact on your business as well? Are buyers being more cautious? As you say, co-production is becoming a bigger part of, of the business as well as people look to create new sorts of partnerships? How's the economic outlook affecting what you do? I think uh, most producers right now are a little bit like nervous because they don't know where a recession goes and how deep it will be. What has happened in the last uh, decade is that people are um, subscribing to two, three different uh, SVOD services, and that's a great revenue stream for our industry to finance shows. Um, so I think it will sober up a little bit because maybe it has been a little bit too happy. No, I mean, great market, but a little bit too much overspent. 
so I think there is still um, there is still a lot of room and opportunity for for great TV series, and that's that's our focus to to develop them. And then the the business business side are are um, developing in a in a logic way, hopefully. And let's um let's just bring things back to um to Turkey then. Uh, impossible to ignore the situation there, and particularly uh, as I say, given that you have such deep roots in the territory. I mean, just just tell us a little bit about those for people who are not familiar. There's a there's a huge trade between you know t- telenovelas in particular between between oh. Turkey and Latin America. Just to sort of talk a little bit about your your roots in that business. No, I think um, Turkish drama is super interesting because I think. From a um, content point of view, they are somehow in pole position in the what is what works in the majority of the world. So it has been an amazing journey to be a part of, and I think creatively a lot of very interesting things being done. Um, right now, it's um, it's it's a very weird situation in this in this country because the effect of the uh, enormous earthquake is you know, not to be underestimated. Biggest natural disaster in Europe for a hundred years, and. Um, we have great passion or great compassion for the Turkish people at the moment. People are really, really suffering and being very nervous. So right now, everything, I mean, just to give you a perspective, all the productions are stopped. All the production companies send their crew cars and everything to help people in, in, the, in the affected areas. And uh, I think the world is supporting, but I think we can do much more. We've donated money, and I encourage everybody to to do more because the suffering here is like just uh, unimaginable. And also the nervousness: what happened if the same thing would happen in Istanbul? So really, the thoughts are with with the Turks, uh, but still there is a fantastic uh, ambition and attitude in this in this country to do quality drama. And the success they have earned, uh, rightfully earned, in the last decades is just very fascinating to be a part of. Um, with, uh, I mean, uh, the way they are, for example, in most recently, um, we sell every show we have uh, and have almost bidding war among Spanish buyers. And I put them in prime time on the main channels and they're performing incredibly well. That's just the last example of, of uh, how well their drama productions are working. And do you have any sense as to when production on some of the series that you're involved in, for example, may be able to restart? As you say, all of the resources in the country are, are being diverted to to deal right. Yeah, I think obviously situation. at some point it has to go back to normal. And uh, Turks are, are kind of, they have experienced crisis before, but I think, uh, so of course production will, uh, will start at some point and we will continue. But what I think is more is that everybody understands that uh, there is a general problem with the constructions uh, in the country. So uh, I don't think many people feel safe uh, sleeping in their apartments. And that's that's a dimension of of, um, life crisis for a lot of people that is uh, probably very real and, and really, really a problem. You also represent the series that brought uh, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky to to fame as well in in Servant of the People, and that that's being remade in in Poland. Um, so mm. a series which uh, has kind of um, an incredible series to be involved with, and um, yeah, I suppose some good news in in some ways from a, a terrible crisis elsewhere as well. No, I mean, of course, it's there seems to be no end of the suffering uh, in the last year in the world. But of course, the Ukrainian, um, uh, the Russian invasion of of Ukraine has been another terrible um, human disaster. And of course, we are really uh, proud to be a long term partner with Zelensky and Studio Quartal. 
um, that started already in 2016 when he launched the TV series Servant of the People that we have uh, now licensed everywhere in the world and share the revenue with the Red Cross and others. Uh, but uh, uh, no, so I mean, he's doing, and uh, I think he's the, he's the real hero of our time when it comes to world leader. I think we need more leadership like that. Kelly Wright was last month named Managing Director of Distribution at Kesher International, the Israeli producer-distributor behind series including False Flag and When Heroes Fly, both remade in the US for Apple TV+. Also known for game shows like Boom, Kesher International is continuing its drama push with new title A Body That Works and is also moving into natural history for the first time through feature doc Tale of the Sleeping Giants and presenting Channel 4 expose Undercover Sexual Harassment The Truth. Wright spoke to me about these titles, the way buyers are responding to economic pressures with renewed interest in formats, aided by streamers relaxing their rights positions and the possibility of a US writer's strike. I'm Kelly Wright. I'm the MD of distribution at Keshet International. We are a distribution company, a production studio, and also a broadcast channel in Israel. Uh, we're the number one commercial free-to-air channel. And we have global outposts around the globe, including in LA, Keshet Studios. In the UK, we have Greenbird and Keshet UK. And in Germany, we have uh, Trezor and Keshet Trezor scripted productions as well. And then our home base in Tel Aviv. So this is us. Um, we have a catalog of many, many hours of finished programs, a lot of UK uh, factual content, as well as international foreign language dramas, particularly Israeli dramas as well. That's obviously um, our legacy and many, many amazing shows, truly amazing shows that we have acquired from producers and broadcasters and platforms around the world that we distribute all over. And we're also very well known for our formats. So our formats can be scripted formats, everything from False Flag, which you know as Suspicion on Apple Plus, for example, and When Heroes Fly, which you know as Echo 3, also on Apple Plus, um, to The Baker and the Beauty, which has been remade in many territories. And game shows such as Boom, which has been running for over 1,500 episodes in Spain on Atris Media, for example, and in about 14 other territories around the world. So both in the scripted and the non-scripted space, we are very active and our catalog is very dynamic. We are a content house. And you're in a relatively new role as managing director of, of distribution now. So congratulations on that. Just tell us a little bit about what your focus is right now, given that new position. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, yeah, really excited to be here. I've been with the company for 10 years now. The company is now also 10 years old. Uh, we have a new CEO, Karen Shachar, and we're just so excited to grow Keshet International um, and to evolve the company. We are known for our formats. We're known for our, our incredible dramas as well, um, especially our Israeli dramas and those with Israeli DNA, the co-productions that we do and the productions that we do. Um, and we're just excited to continue to evolve in an ever-changing market. Ten years ago, our content market was built on entirely different business models than it is today. And that means having to really grow and keep abreast of those changes, to evolve with them, to really ensure that the content that we have, the legacy content that we have, our formats and our dramas in our catalog, which have been a part of our catalog for many years, find new homes and outlets, 
um, to expand into social media revenue streams, which is something new and interesting to digital media, and to continue to really grow brands that have helped build this company and continuing to sell scripted formats, especially in a market in which the prospect of formats is becoming, I think, very attractive again, whereas originals were kind of the the name of the game for the last few years. And uh, it, it definitely as companies were expanding their OTT and SVOD presence and really having to, to court viewers into subscribing with original content, I think that a lot of those budgets have have been used up, um, some more successfully than others. And scripted formats and formats in the entertainment world as well have really proven themselves for many, many years now in our business and continue to be an interesting prospect in today's world when, let's be honest, you know, we have a cost of living crisis. You know, we might be headed towards a global recession. We have a political situation in Europe, which is causing a lot of stress on, on governments and budgets. And that extends to television as well and to advertising. And I think that, you know, we're really here as a format house to support buyers who are looking for that right content. For example, some of our shows, we are licensing and optioning now as feature films. So going from scripted format to a feature film for streaming platforms, for global streaming platforms. And it's really about taking that content that's been successful and really looking at how we continue to extend its life and to repurpose it because those stories which work and which are universal will continue to work and be universal on different forms of media and for different buyers at different times. Okay, and let's talk more about some of those things in a moment, but let's bring it back to the the London screenings for a moment. Um, Just tell us historically what's been Kesha International's involvement in that event you know, and, and how have you seen it kind of growing in terms of its place in the industry calendar? So from the corona days, uh, London has become a place to launch and really the first market of the year to launch uh, a slate. And we take that extremely seriously. We've been hosting virtual screening events over the last few years and launching uh, uh, slates in that sense, always around this time, around um, around March in tandem with the London screenings. And we're really, really excited to be here in London now, launching a slate which is very, very diverse. Um, London is the place to be. It's the center for sure of the European television market, and it's probably the center of the global television market in many regards. And we're really excited to be here and to be a part of the London screenings. We will be launching three new titles uh, and a new genre, which is very exciting for us, Natural History, which is led by a Finnish film from the production company Matilda Rohr Productions called Tale of the Sleeping Giant. Uh, which is right now premiered at EFM. And we're really excited to launch Natural History. We think that, first of all, it's a classic genre. It's a genre that is a must-have in a catalog for every distribution company. There is such an incredible curiosity and respect for our planet that is happening in younger generations and in older generations, and it is becoming a real topic, and has always been a real topic of conversation, obviously, but It's really an appreciation for our planet that we feel we need to take on as well as distributors, whether that's for public broadcasters, that's premium content for streamers, or that's cinematic releases. It really fits across all media. And we're super, super excited because we have incredibly stunning films that we're going to be launching into our catalog, as well as a bank of thousands and thousands of hours that we're going to be developing from in terms of new content as well. Um, So that's led by Tale of the Sleeping Giant. And in addition to that, we've got Undercover Sexual Harassment, The Truth, which is a very pertinent topic. That was a very nice hit uh, in the UK in December. 
from Cal-El, the production house, a Greenberg company. And we've already sold that into three territories. We're also launching it as a format. What it does is it sets a woman out into the streets, pretending like she's had a little bit too much to drink and really seeing how men respond to her. And they respond to her in ways that are frightening. And what we do is we afterwards, after doing a few kind of social experiments like this, we confront these men with their response. And it's it's incredible. The reactions that they have are really, really incredible. It's an important show. We're really, really proud to have the show in our catalog. And the third show that we're going to be launching actually today at, at our screening event is A Body That Works. And A Body That Works is the lead in Keshet's 100 million shekel investment in drama across the next two years, 2023 and 2024. It's a drama that is a series mania nominee for best uh, series, best director, best actor, best actress, and the audience award. We are super proud of this show. It launched actually uh, mid-February on Keshet, has improved on the ratings week after week, which is an incredible thing to do. Typically, as a commercial channel, we would expect to shed about 10 to 20% of the audience from the first episode. They tune in, they want to see what the story is, and then around 20% would leave. We've managed to grow the audience, which is something that we haven't done in years, which is an incredible thing to do and a real testament to the show itself. The show is about surrogacy and fertility. And I think women's bodies have been in the news so much, whether it comes to harassment, rape, uh, abortion, all kinds of issues, hot button issues. Um, and this show really asks, how far would you go to have a family and to have a baby? And what's more important, to have a pregnancy or to have a child? And how does it feel as a woman who's been trying for five years to get pregnant, who's done in vitro fertilization, artificial insemination, who's tried every single way, shape and form to get pregnant, to see another woman get pregnant like that with her embryo? What does it do to a husband to see another woman impregnated with his child? What does it do to their relationship to bring a young, healthy woman who's growing week by week, rounder and rounder with their child into their home? And I think that these are really interesting questions to ask specifically to this show, as well as in the general context of women today. Can we have it all? Do we have to choose? How much of our autonomy, uh, our bodily autonomy extends to having a family and how much of our bodies belong to our partners, how much of our, our legacies, at least here in Israel, you know, there's always a question of rebuilding the Jewish population. Uh, it's a real thing. You know, people really feel a lot of pressure to have children and to have a lot of children here in Israel. And there isn't really an option to opt out of that. So I think that maybe this element is unique to Israel, especially in the Western world. But I think that the element of having a baby at all costs and raising a family and doing anything as future parents to have that child. And I think those of us who have children can probably relate to that in some shape or form, whether we went through fertility issues or not. This is something universal. You've touched on uh, a number of things in, in some of your answers in terms of the cost of living crisis in terms of the way that buyers are facing economic difficulties and the way in which formats in that environment are perhaps seeing a, a bit of an uptick and a return to popularity. So just unpick some of those things with you in terms of, you know, what you think buyers are looking for, how they're kind of managing the, the situation and, uh, you know, how you're responding as a company. Buyers always have been looking for what works well. <laughs> 
And that kind of stability and that dependability that comes with content that works well, that's cost effective, that makes an impact, that brings an audience and revenues. And right now, you know, we talked up, we touched on the cost of living crisis. We talked on being budget conscious as a broadcaster. We talked on the extraordinary growth in expenditure and in costs that come with original productions. Um, I think we in Israel can definitely attest to that. The cost of production has skyrocketed here in Israel. What maybe used to cost $250,000 for an hour of drama is now $450,000, $500,000. And that's just in the last few years. So we're really talking about an incredible jump in costs. I think every broadcaster around the world and every platform around the world, which is growing its its reach in terms of how do you reach viewers or creating apps or creating ad-supported apps, as subscription-supported apps are creating other ways for consumers to, to reach their content, know what a significant investment it is to create this, these technologies and to grow them and to have the right kind of library and the right kind of content to ensure that they are long-lasting and stand on the shelf alongside the Netflixes and Amazon Primes and HBO Maxes of the world. It's super competitive. And I think everybody's looking for a way to maximize their impact, minimize their costs in this environment. And formats are the answer. Formats that have scripts, that have excellent scripts, that have award-winning scripts, that have been reproduced in other territories, that have multiple season arcs, that have characters that audiences have adopted and loved is really, really important, as well as in the non-scripted world. To see a show succeed somewhere these days is not an ease, a new show, is not a, a something to take for granted. And I think everybody is looking for where a show has succeeded and why it succeeded and what about that show. And, you know, even if that show looks relatively soft, and I think a lot of formats these days could be positioned as soft or as an amalgamation of various formats in the past, it still saves you so much time and energy in development that it is worth looking at those formats and adapting them for a local market. Um, there's also the writer's strike in the U.S., which everybody has to be extremely conscious of because regardless of, and you touched on this earlier, Jonathan, licensing models being more restricted in content that's coming out of the U.S., which might be loosening now, there's a question of where is that pipeline of content going to come from if there's a writer's strike? We're already feeling that as a U.S. production company in terms of orders of series and returning series that we have that have been shortened due to fears about the writer's strike. So I think it's really important for buyers who do rely to some degree on U.S. content to stock their shelves with other types of drama. In terms of the way in which we're seeing global streamers to some degree relaxing their rights positions and um, at the same time, U.S. studios that had withdrawn from licensing to stock their own streaming services with their own content, they're talking about being a little bit more relaxed and returning to the licensing business as well. So how are those two dynamics impacting what you do and, and how do you think they're going to sort of change the industry moving forwards? Yeah, I think rollout maybe hasn't gone as anticipated or has taken a longer time than as anticipated for all of the reasons that we just discussed as well. Have no doubt that these kind of uh, economic concerns and pressures are on the big players as well as the smaller players. And I think that it it's exciting because that means that there's more content for everyone out there to license and it's not just concentrated on one platform or in one vertical. 
um, and that our content sits very well alongside, for example, U.S. Studios content. And we do even have U.S. Studios content in our catalog. For example, we sell The Baker and the Beauty, the American version in several territories. Uh, we sell Deal With It, uh, which is executive produced by Howie Mandel, which is a hidden camera game show in a lot of territories. And I think that there is definitely something for everyone. What's exciting about the global streamers? Yes, obviously, when they license your format, they take the entire world. Uh, sometimes they even take the format off the table, but they are relinquishing those rights as time goes by and they're being quite fair about it. And what we're seeing now is, uh, which we'll be announcing sometime later this year, is some of our successful shows on Apple are coming up for distribution and for redistribution of the format this year. So we definitely feel that they're absolutely fair in the fact that they are putting a lot, a lot, a lot of money into production, that they're really taking, um, if they're going to adapt a format, they're going to do it to the max and that that maximum deserves certain rights. But they're very, very fair in relinquishing and releasing in a time-sensitive way those rights back into the market. So it's really exciting, I think, for buyers who were already fans of shows like False Flag, for example, which is our our winner um, of the Audience Award and the Grand Prize at Series Mania, and has you know was under a global deal with Fox International Channels and then was reproduced as Suspicion with Uma Thurman for Apple Plus. Um, you know, we have we have an Indian version of the format which is coming out. We have basically now opportunities to to sell the format after buyers have been, you know, the buyers first saw the format in 2015. Buyers who have seen Suspicion and who have said, ah, Suspicion is an amazing show. What's it based on? Where did, where did the idea come from? Can now see that it came from Israel. It came from False Flag. It came from the Keshav catalog and can go and come to us and say, hey, we really love Suspicion. We would love to do something like False Flag in our territory as well. So I think it is... Um, it's exciting because it just means that more and better content is out there uh, for everyone to share in. And it's our job as distributors and producers to make sure that our content is right, sitting right up there with the best of it. TVF International is the UK-based factual specialist representing titles including Hulu, Me Too, Expose, The Reckoning, The Faces of History from the creator of The Traitors, an early stage wildlife documentary, The Lion's Last Roar. Acquisitions manager Julian Shu Lambert spoke to me about these projects, the place of the London TV screenings in the international TV industry calendar and the trends he sees shaping business as budgets become squeezed and buyers, producers and distributors all seek closer collaboration. I'm Julian Cho-Lambert. I'm Acquisitions Manager at TVF International. We at TVF are a long-standing distributor of factual programming. Uh, we're, we're actually celebrating our 30th year this year, which is quite exciting. Uh, we're fiercely independent and we represent some of the most innovative producers from around the world. And um, your presence at the London screenings, just tell us a little bit about your relationship with that event, which has been growing over the past sort of few years obviously with the interruption of the pandemic but uh, what, what's been your involvement to date and what's it going to be like this year definitely yeah i think last year was really exciting because everyone was traveling post pandemic and i think this year it's going to be even bigger um we we already have record attendance numbers i think actually the london screenings for, for certainly for british distributors is almost becoming more important than mip tv we have a lot of of buyers coming and I think it's just growing and we obviously have to coordinate with other distributors. Uh, but but yeah, it, it looks really exciting. It's, it's been something that's been growing, as you said, with a bit of a COVID inter interruption in between. 
Um, but I think it is very, very valuable time for us to to meet all of our buyers from around the world in person. So, yeah, um, you know, from your company's point of view, obviously, you know, what are the shows that you're most excited about and how do you feel that these are going to sort of land in the marketplace right now? Why do you think they're going to be of interest to buyers? Yeah, well, we've got a really diverse slate, including some top tier investigative specials, some premium history and some wildlife series, among among other programs. These, this is our, these are Heartland genres for TVF, specialist factual. So we have The Reckoning, Hollywood's Worst Kept Secret from Melbourne Media and Hulu. That's an expose, the definitive account of how systemic sexual abuse in Hollywood was brought to light. So that's a really topical investigative feature. Then we have Dunhuang, Ancient Frontier Fortress from IFA Media and Tencent. That's a real Game of Thrones style docudrama about this UNESCO World Heritage Site's uh, turbulent ancient history. So big dramatic reconstructions in that one, which is definitely something that we're seeing a lot of demand for now. We also have the Faces of History from POS Video and NPO. So POS Video are the original creators of The Traitors, which is the format that's been getting a lot of buzz around the world. And this is a, a unique history format where the faces of iconic historical figures such as Cleopatra and Shakespeare are digitally recreated by a renowned 3D artist. Um, we also have some premium wildlife programming, which is really exciting. The Lion's Last Roar from Tailsmith in the UK and Z in India. So that's a landmark miniseries on how we can save the lion from extinction. And it has exclusive access in Zimbabwe's Huangye National Park and India's Gear Forest. And finally, we have a, a fun wildlife inside access series called Secrets of the Aquarium, uh, which is from Hall of Mirrors and the BBC. And that's has exclusive access inside uh, the UK's largest aquarium, which has over 5,000 animals in Devon. Uh, so that's going to be a really fun series, uh, very entertaining. There's there's a bit we've seen where they have to transport a shark from a, a sort of basement into a tank, uh, which is filled with quite a lot of jeopardy. So yeah, a very diverse uh, slate. Um, and, and like I said, we're, we're seeing a lot of demand for premium titles across all of these genres. Uh, I suppose the streamers have, in the last few years, really pushed up the global level of production, uh, of the, the kind of production value that we expect from Factual. And I think that's reflected in the quality of some of these programmes. You mentioned uh, dramatic reconstructions there as well. You were saying that that's something that buyers are, are demanding more and more. Why do you think that's kind of happening? Absolutely. That's been a growing trend for the last few years. I think... All of our attention spans are slightly shorter than maybe they used to be, um, given the rise of short form video and dramatic reconstructions are almost a must now for, for big history programs and crime. You know, we really expect to see them uh, on, on any streamer. If you watch a crime show, you, you always expect to see reconstructions. Um, I think with history, it's, it, it's also becoming almost the norm now. Uh, we really want to see we really want to be entertained by a history program you know we don't want to just see a presenter wandering around telling us about something we want to see that recreated uh we have another history series which is really exciting called ages ancient civilizations series two and that's looking at the ancient kingdoms of japan and korea and that is presented, but then it's brought to life through dramatic animations so you've got some big battles um you know some sort of um 
which, which, are, which are need to be reconstructed. So that's another way that I think history producers are, are being creative, you know, using animations potentially instead of full-on reconstructions. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a trend that's been growing. And you also mentioned the fact that you're working with the creators of the the traitors, given that that show has proven so popular and, and, and given your role as, you know, an acquirer of, of titles to distribute for, for TVF. Um, you know, how did you go about securing that relationship? And given that it's such a, a competitive market as well, you know, for a for a company that's hot as a result of, of a hit like that, you know, what are the challenges that you face on that front? Definitely. Well, pause video we have been working with for a number of years. Um, and, and the the show The Faces of History is commissioned by NPO, who are a great broadcaster. With this kind of program, actually, so we have the format rights and we also have the completed tape rights, but we have reversioned the original program because the original program is actually in Dutch. So we are actually working with the producer very closely to create an English version with an English voiceover to help it reach a wide audience as a completed show. Um, so that's something that we've been doing more and more of at TVF. In fact, you know, we've done that for with with a number of other projects, including Dunhuang Ancient Frontier Fortress. We've been reversioning that. Um, so, yeah, I think that that really helps mark us out because we're looking at how to make an existing program fit the widest possible audience around the world. Um, and yeah, we're, we're super excited about that one, The Faces of History. It, it is originally in Dutch, which is a language which, you know, isn't widely spoken outside of Holland. Um, so I think it is uh, something that we, we've had to take, a, you know, a lot of care about reversioning it in a in a uh, an appropriate way. Um, but yeah, the, the, the icons that it includes, St. Nicholas, Cleopatra, Shakespeare, you know, those are huge international figures that we're really excited about. And on the wildlife front, you talk about, you know, the, the fact that the streamers have kind of, driven this push into premium programming across the board really but wildlife in particular has been one of those genres which in in recent years has kind of benefited from that trend i guess in the same way that people have perhaps talked about a, a peak in 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 drama in premium drama are we sort of seeing a peak in premium wildlife now do you feel you know that every single streamer that's out there needs to have their kind of landmark series that marks them out in in that category you know but um how do you see that that premium wildlife genre playing out? Definitely. I think that wildlife has always been one of the most international genres. And, and that's one of the reasons that the global streamers love it, because you can you can change the voiceover into another language very easily. Often, you know, premium wildlife is voiceover led. Um, so, yeah, we, we've seen all, all of the big broadcasters, I guess, you know, originally the BBC had a bit of a, a stranglehold on premium wildlife, but that's now spread across Netflix, Apple TV, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I think with, with wildlife now, there, there is a bit of a saturation point. So you do need something a little bit different. Um, our, our program, our most recent wildlife program, The Lion's Last Raw, that's looking at wildlife lion conservation. Um, so I, I suppose having an element like conservation or, you know, obviously a lot of wildlife programming now does have to have that kind of messaging, especially if it's going to be airing on public broadcasters. Um, so something a little bit unique. Um, this this project compares wildlife uh, lion conservation in Africa with lion conservation in India. Uh, the Asiatic lion has actually been pretty much saved from extinction, which is quite a remarkable story, which has never been told. Um, so yeah, telling 
wildlife stories from a new angle. The emphasis on premium generally means an emphasis uh, on cost also. So in terms of making these programmes and, and the economic pressures that everybody's facing, I know that's not your your business as such as a distributor, but um, what about those those sort of headwinds that we're seeing and you know how are they affecting what you do? Definitely. Well, it is actually part of our business because we do work across co-productions and pre-sales. And I would say that their co-productions are becoming more in vogue now, obviously with the reduction in, in budgets across both streamers and um, uh, local broadcasters. Now producers are, are having to be a little bit more savvy in terms of where they're getting their money to, to, to make their show. So um, at TVF, we, we do quite a lot of pre-sales and co-productions for, for selected projects, for you know the top projects. Um, and yeah, it's about finding homes across the world and being a little bit more flexible about, about where you're getting your funding from. And, and also for us, I mean, we've diversified. We have uh, an incredible amount of uh, brilliant British programming. You know, we're based in London. We've had a lot of fantastic British programming over the years, and we still do. But we also have programming from all around the world, including Asia, including Scandinavia, including America, Latin America, you know. so. I think it's about diversifying both in terms of funding and also in terms of sourcing um, productions, because, I mean, you look at the production value of Factual in Asia, for example, Factual in Korea, China, India, uh, Dunhuang Ancient Frontier Fortress that's come out of China. It's it's got the best dramatic reconstructors I've seen in any Factual series um, across the years. So there, there is a lot of talent and a lot of high quality production um, to be to be mined around the world. You just have to be a bit resourceful in finding it. And in terms of that resourcefulness, you know, how do you work differently now? You know, compared to say say recent years, you know, you, you're talking about diversifying. You're talking about British programming and uh, looking to other markets to to expand your your catalogue. That that's a kind of strategy which is continuing, is it? Absolutely. And I mentioned the reversioning work that we're doing. That's for, um, say, non-English language programming. So, for example, with Dunhuang, Ancient Frontier Fortress, uh, the original series was five times 27. And that got 50 million views per episode on Tencent, which is quite a big number. So we've reversioned that to two times 52. Um, I personally have worked as an international producer on that project. So I'm heavily involved in the reversioning of that. Um, and that is going to completely change. Well, it is already changing the game for that show internationally, because for history bias, the two times 52 series is much more programmable than a five times 27, for example. Um, Another way is we we recently worked with Future Studios in the UK on deficit financing. So we helped deficit finance Unbelievable Me, which is a human stories series following inspiring individuals living with rare conditions around the world. So we work really closely with them and we set up a pre-sale with Discovery Plus and that helps deficit finance the, the program and, you know, get them into production on that series. So, so I'd say, you know, compared to a few years ago, we're we're even more hands-on with those kind of financial deals and, and early stage co-productions and pre-sales. I think PAC's most recent UK export survey released last year, but only only a few months ago, was sort of talking about the fact that um exports of of UK shows and formats to the US were actually down, but there was there was growth um notably in, in Germany. The Netherlands and Italy, for example, um, 
you know, on a, on a sort of territory basis, what are the countries that you're most excited about? And um, what do you feel about the popularity of UK programming? Yeah, I think there's definitely still a, a big audience for um, for British programming across the world. Uh, our production values are really great. Um, of course, it varies a bit depending on genre. You, you mentioned premium wildlife there. The UK, we've always had incredible wildlife producers, and I don't see that changing any anytime soon. You know, our, our wildlife production is, is really world class. Um, I'd say that in terms of other genres, broadcasters around the world are looking for authenticity, diverse, um, diverse narratives. And I think that, you know, in the UK, perhaps in the past, we were a little bit complacent about our programming um, being really, really great and just automatically traveling internationally. I think now we do have to think a little bit harder about the kind of programming that, you know, that we're doing and and what markets it's going to travel to outside of, say, Australia, New Zealand, the US, where, where I think British programming does very, very well still. So yeah, it's 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 looking at, as I said, potentially co-producing with other territories uh, or, or thinking, either thinking globally, because there are still some some big streamers commissioning factual. I know that the budgets have gone down recently. Um, so either going really, really big or thinking a little bit more strategically about what exactly uh, you're, you're producing and, and which markets um, it, it can work in. And obviously, just as a distributor, we're very well placed to advise on that at an early stage. And in terms of those global streamers, they seem to be sort of, you know, relaxing their rights positions to to some degree as the market becomes a little bit more fluid. The US studios that have withdrawn from licensing over the past years as they've been focusing on their own streamers as well, they they seem to be returning to to licensing and selling programming as well. So what are the implications of those shifts for your business and um, the industry more broadly? Yeah, I mean, we we do have a few big deals ongoing with global streamers. Uh, I think it's fair to say that global streamers are relaxing their rights position on certain programs, but mainly on programs that they don't care about so much. <laughs> so I'd say unless you're talking about a global commission, you're unlikely to get a premium fee from a, from a global streamer. Um, and free-to-air broadcasters still aren't necessarily ready to share rights all the time with Netflix. I mean, sometimes they will make exceptions, but it's still a little bit of a jigsaw. Um, so, 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 like I said, I think yes, the the streamers have pushed up the production value of Factual across the board. Um, but in terms of their budgets um, going down, that is something that that is is tricky for producers around the world and distributors to deal with. Okay, well, that's great. I mean, just just bringing it back to the London screenings, you know, interesting what you're saying about co-productions and the growing importance of those to your business as well. So to what extent are they going to be a focus of conversations for for you and, 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 you know, potential partners at, at the London screenings? I think they're going to be a big focus because pitching co-productions and early stage projects is always much better in person. So, um, you know, completed completed shows, obviously it is good to meet in person, but if you're talking about a big scale project, it, it, it's so important to have those face-to-face conversations. Um, the Lion's Last Roar, as I've mentioned, is a big focus for us, um, for our London screenings. That's a, an earlier stage project that uh, we are looking to get pre-sales for. Um, so that's just one example, the Faces of History, that's um, both for computer tape and as a format. So there's kind of format discussions. We've had quite a lot of interest in, in that as a format, obviously given Pos Video's reputation. Um, so yeah, certainly the kind of larger scale conversations 
will be a big focus at our London screenings. Julian Schulambert speaking with me earlier this week. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more discussion by tuning in to our C21 FM internet radio station, where you'll find new interviews airing from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.